Leadership means consistency in our values and our ethics, and it also means adapting to different kinds of people and situations. While it's always a challenge to lead underperformers, it's often equally hard and sometimes less clear what to do in the opposite situation. In this episode, how to do better when leading high performers. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 567. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Of course, leadership calls us to lead all kinds of people inside our organizations. We have our typical employees. We have folks that we run into, of course, that don't perform effectively. And we need to address that, as we've talked about many times on the show. And many of us, uh, in fact, most of us, have the privilege to lead high performers. How do we do that effectively? It is really different than just managing a typical employee. And there's so much we can learn from the research and the experts on how to really lead and retain high performers effectively. I'm so glad to welcome today someone who's absolutely an expert on this, has done a ton of research, and is going to help us to really look at some of the practical things we can do when thinking about leading and retaining high performers. I'm pleased to welcome Ruth Gautian to the show. She has been hailed by the journal Nature and Columbia University as an expert in mentorship and leadership development. In 2021, she was selected as one of 30 people worldwide to be named to the Thinkers 50 radar list, where she is described as a prolific mentor and educator leading important research into the secrets of success. She's a semifinalist for the Forbes Over 50 list and has coached and mentored hundreds of people throughout her career. In addition to being published in academic journals, she is a contributor to Forbes and Psychology Today, where she writes about optimizing success. She's the Chief Learning Officer in Anesthesiology and former Assistant Dean of Mentoring and Executive Director of the Mentoring Academy at Weill Cornell Medicine, where she is a faculty member. She is the author of The Success Factor, Developing the Mindset and Skill Set for Peak Business Performance. Ruth, what a pleasure to have you on the show. I am so excited, Dave. This is really cool because, as you know, I'm a big, big fan of the show, having listened to it for years. So this is awesome. I know. I know. It was so fun when we got introduced by our our mutual pal, Mark Goulston, uh, not long ago. And I was so excited to see the book coming out and then found out you were listening. What a neat way for us to begin our conversation. <laughs> yes. and, and actually, we share something in common, I think, having read the book Ooh. in that I think both of us think of ourselves a bit today and find ourselves in situations where we think about ourselves as high performers. I know I like to think of myself that way and and other people point to us as that. And yet I don't think it really started that way for either of us in our careers based on reading the book. It sounds like that was true for you too, right? Well I'm definitely working on my way to be a high performer. But you know one of the things that I really love about your show is the tagline that leaders aren't born, they're made. Uh, and yeah. I I feel the same thing about high achievers. They're not born, they're made. The problem is that most people don't understand how to develop into a high achiever, how to lead these high achievers, how to get the most out of these people with so much high potential. 
We have so many people with this untapped high potential and they just become frozen in the middle of our organization. So I am here with the book, The Success Factor, to thaw out that middle and really tap into the potential of our best employees and anybody who wants to improve their own success. Oh, indeed. And and there's there's always been a tremendous, I think, untapped opportunity to do more of that. And especially now in the midst of the pandemic and post-pandemic of looking at a workforce that is now asking for a lot more and expecting mm-hmm. a lot more on how we engage. And I think it's one of the things that's really interesting as a starting point is just thinking about the difference in productivity levels between yeah. a high performer and a typical employee. What do we know about what the data and research show us about this? So high performers actually perform 400% more than the average employee. Wow. The problem is we are ignoring those people and we're putting all of our attention to the low performers. So I'll give you an example. If your organization has annual reviews and on the annual reviews, you are scored based on a scale. Let's say it's one to five with one being low, three being average, and five being high. If you get three, that's the average score, you are meeting expectations. You are now officially below the radar. Everybody leaves you alone. If you exceed those expectations, you get a four or five. You may get a nice tap on the shoulder, thumbs up, keep it going, right? And maybe the reward for good work is more work. But if you fall below a three, then you're a low performer. And then what happens? The organizations pounce. You get a corrective action plan. You get a supervisor who checks in with you to hold you accountable that you are meeting these new goals. They send you out to courses and workshops to improve your skills. Now, if that's what a low performer is getting, shouldn't the high performer at the very least get some of those opportunities as well. In Mm. fact, even more because they are producing 400% more and they're more innovative and more creative and more curious. So why are we not giving that attention to the high performers, to the high achievers? And I'm here to really share some of those ways that leaders can do that as they develop leaders in their organization. And they can lead their organization in that way. And this, Dave, this is based on years of research that I've had with extreme high performers, astronauts, Nobel Prize winners, Olympic champions, CEOs of major organizations, senior government officials. This is not just Ruth Gotian's opinion. This is actually based on a lot of research with really, really impressive people. You write in the book, those who supervise high performers need to know how to corral and engage with these unique employees. What works for everyone else will not work for them. That's right. What's an example of something that uh, you know a lot of managers or leaders may typically do and works well for a typical employee, but doesn't often land well with a, a high performer? I think one of the, the greatest pieces is offer them autonomy. Give them um, the autonomy and make sure that the authority matches their responsibilities. So allow them to take strategic risks, allow them to fail without penalty, 
right? Nobody died from, from these mistakes, but the, they won't be able to be innovative and really leverage their curiosity if we're going to punish them for making mistakes. So within a predefined border of what is permissible, let them take those risks, give them that space to do it. Make sure again, that if you're giving them these big responsibilities, you are not hovering over them and you are allowing the authority to match the responsibility. Because if there's a mismatch, they're going to walk out the door. Yeah, indeed. It's interesting you mentioned that. that that's one of the areas that I, I highlighted a bunch was providing autonomy <laughs> in the book. And I, I pulled a quote from that section uh, where you wrote, high achievers can make connections that others do not yet see or appreciate. They yeah. crave finding the unknown and going down a path that others have not. For high achievers, the chase is as exciting as the win, which is likely why they fear not trying more than they fear failing. And I read that and I wrote down, this is really different than how we yeah. approach most employees, isn't it? It certainly is. And, and you know, it's really about the fear not trying more than you fear failing. And that was really a common thread with all of the extreme high achievers I spoke to. They couldn't not try. They had to at least try. They were very much okay with failing, very much okay with being rejected, but they were not okay with not even trying. One of the people who I talk about in the book is three-time Olympian, Devin Harris. And Devin Harris, if you ever saw the movie Cool Runnings, oh, he was yeah. a member of the original Jamaican bobsledding team. Now, imagine four guys who grew up on a tropical island in the Caribbean, never saw snow, let alone ice. And here they were competing in the Winter Olympics. Yeah, Talk about fear not trying more than you fear failing. Now, if you talk to Devin Harris, you'll, you'll see that he's actually afraid of speed and heights, but he kept doing it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and it's definitely all about the fear not trying more than you fear failing and, and giving that that space to try. Now, the Jamaican bobsledding team never won a medal at the Winter Olympics, but it was never about the medal for them. Yeah. It was about trying. Yeah, indeed. And I think it, when I think about that, I mean, one of the biggest complaints that managers often have is that people don't show enough initiative. They really do want to see employees take the reins to try stuff that hasn't been tried before. And yeah. it's really almost the opposite with a high performer in that part of our job is to get out of their way a bit and not necessarily slow them down when it comes to this. And I, I, I'm wondering if you've, as you think about leaders and teams you've advised, is, is there something that helps a leader who's leading a high performer or maybe even a high performing team to like make that mindset shift a bit as far as how they approach that, to, to get out of people's way a bit? Look, I think Peter Drucker, he always said people do what they see. So you have to actually role model that behavior of getting out of their way and giving everyone permission to do that, where you're giving them a responsibility, you get out of their way, and then you let them shine. And when it's time 
to actually talk about what it is they found, what it is they noticed, what it is they appreciated, what they noticed is not even working. You want them to talk about it. You need to, and that's one of the other tips, is offer them the opportunity for the exposure. Let them talk about what it is that they did on these stretch assignments, which you should be giving your high achievers. And this is really what we call situational leadership. If somebody is taking control of an assignment or a project, you want that person to actually be presenting to the higher ups about that and not have just their boss do it because that's someone else taking credit for all of their work. And as we just discussed earlier, these are the people who are seeing connections that other people aren't yet seeing. They are able to look really one inch wide and six inches deep on something in a way that other people can't do. So you really want to give give them the space to be able to do that and let them have those stretch assignments because they love that. That is the chase for them. So let them do it. Yeah, you you said so many key things there that remind me of a bunch of early mistakes I made in my career when working with people that had a lot of potential and often were smarter than me. But I I got caught up in the, well, this isn't their position today, or this isn't the title, or it's not in their job description. And at some point, I don't remember who, but someone challenged me of saying, hey, you know, you could actually just invite this person to the meeting, or you could just decide (laughs) that they're going to help out with this thing or or do the stretch assignment or be in this meeting where they get a bunch of visibility and and maybe even do part of the presentation. And you could just decide that as their manager, that, that you could do that. And it was one of those moments for me that I kind of had this like, oh, it was like a light bulb went off. Yeah. I mean, it seems so. It seems so obvious to me now. But when that happened, it was like it doesn't have to be like I can only give this person this opportunity once they have the title that says these words. That I can actually start bringing them into things and be real intentional about that. And that's really like so much of what I hear you saying. And the research shows is like give people that visibility, give them those stretch assignments. Yeah. If you do that, you're gonna you're gonna really engage them in a way that's so much more profound than just the formal titles. Absolutely. And you also want to, and this is what you alluded to, create these advancement pathways. So the high achievers need rapid promotion opportunities. They are not going to sit in their same chair for 10 years because their boss, who's directly above them, is stuck in their career. So you need to actually tell them about opportunities, even if they are two levels up. They don't have to go in the natural cadence of how someone goes from a supervisor to a manager, to a director, to a senior director. They can actually jump higher and over and jump over some steps because hopefully they've proven it with their productivity of 400% more than the average employee. And very often what we see is their boss is stuck. So how can that high achiever get promoted if their boss didn't get promoted? Well, if they're not going, if the high achiever is not going to get promoted, guess what? They're going to leave. Yeah, indeed, <laughs> indeed. I and I'm I'm glad you mentioned this because I, I when I was studying your research, I was thinking about a client that I have right now who is I would certainly put in the category of someone who's a high performer, and there's an opportunity in her organization right now to apply for a much more senior role, 
And Mm -hmm. some people are encouraging her to do it, and she could probably get the role if she applied Mm -hmm. for it and made it known that she was interested. But it's not really... It's not really where her heart is, but it's the next step up on the ladder. And if she doesn't go for it, it's going to be four to five years before another role opens up realistically. And she loves the organization. She loves the firm. But it's kind of like a, it's an interesting situation. On one hand, she knows that's the next step, but it's like, you know, I, I, this, just isn't, this isn't really where my heart is. And I know that there's better opportunities. For folks who are in small to medium-sized organizations where there is a little bit more of the, okay, I'm. there's only a certain amount of opportunity. I, I, how do you invite leaders to think about that as far as like working with someone who is kind of thinking about that through the traditional, all right, here's this opportunity and this one may not open up for another few years. But you know what? It, it's interesting, Dave, you talk about this because sometimes people have to be one foot out the door before the organization realizes what they're about to lose. Uh. And as a result, in order to retain them, who says that the job descriptions that you've had for the last few decades are the right fit for these, these high performers? Because remember, high performers, they don't work well with that very strict job description and and those micromanaging tendencies. So sometimes you can create something and leave it loose because that is when you will see them shine. You want to give them that flexibility to really stretch themselves. And what they are about to do, you may not have even thought of, which means it will never even be in that job description. So these positions can actually be created, especially if you want to retain these high performers. So retaining these high performers sometimes means thinking differently. High performers don't fit so nicely in the check boxes that you have. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you need to do, do things just a little bit differently, especially if you want to retain them. And you want to retain them. You know why? Who do you think their friends are? Yeah. Other high performers. Yeah. So if yeah. you want to recruit other high performers, you better show that the ones that you have are well-nurtured, well-cared for, well-developed, and then they'll start bringing in their friends. Now, what is the opposite of that happening? Now, if they bring in their friends, you're going to have now an organization filled with high achievers, and you're going to create this amazing environment for them to be innovative and curious and really bring things to new heights. But if they start leaving because all the attention is going to the low performers, Your high achievers will leave and the organization will be left with, at best, average employees. At worst, low performers. So as a leader, which do you prefer? Yeah, indeed. And I'm thinking about the great resignation that we've seen in the last year since the pandemic uh, has taken over. And I I know of a firm right now that has has had that exact same thing happen where- A couple of high performers left, and it was like a domino effect. All of the high performers departed within like six months. And now it's what's left in the firm is the kind of the average to low performing population. And it really has been a such a difficult transition for this organization. And it's really a, I mean, for me, the reminder that comes out of this is. What I do with as a leader in one relationship with one high performer, like those people 
have have friends inside and outside the organization that really That's are right. like them and are going to make a big difference in how they how they support the organization going forward. Absolutely. And you also want to provide mentorship for these high performers. When I say leave them alone, definitely, you know, leave them alone, let them spread their wings, let them be creative, but you also want to mentor them. And one of the people who really gave great thoughts on this that I researched for the book, and I, I spoke to him was Steve Kerr, the eight-time NBA champion oh, and the current, yeah. the current coach of the Warriors. And you know, he's got this great team. And we talked about the makeup of the team, the roster of the basketball team. And he said, look, everyone there is fantastic, but everyone has also a certain role. The number one player will still be number one. They don't have to worry about getting kicked off the team as some of the low, you know, the the ones who aren't performing as well, but still high achievers. But that high performer, that number one performer is worried about losing the number one spot, while the last one on the bench might be worried about losing their spot on the team. But there is a role for every single one of those people on the team. Some offer the expertise, right? The the more senior players, the seasoned players are really sharing their expertise. The young players are really, they have that energy, that contagious energy. And then you have those in the middle that are the backbone because they are mentoring the the more junior players. And that's how you always have a cycle of senior people mentoring junior people, but the junior people also provide value by bringing in this energy to the team. Every single person has a role. So you want to make sure that your high achievers are mentored. And there's so many ways that are discussed in in the book, The Success Factor, about how to mentor, because I don't think anyone should just have one mentor, but how you need to mentor these high performers, because you want to make sure you're doing it. Otherwise, again, they're going to walk out the door and you're going to be left with average or low performers. Yeah, indeed. And Steve Kerr and that organization, what an incredible example they are really, and he is, of really not just having a few high performers, but a whole high-performing team as an organization. And, And that actually... It begs a question as I was as I was thinking about this of I, I think that a lot of leaders I've talked with have had the experience where they've had a high performer on their team or maybe a second person, and then the rest of the team isn't necessarily there. And of course, all of us want to really move to that place, like being the Steve Kerr Kerrs of the world, yeah. right? Who Actually, it's most of the team that are high performers. And I'm curious what you've seen that makes a difference, perhaps, for a leader who is managing maybe one, maybe Mm -hmm. a second high performer, to get to a place where those high performers start to attract others on the team, or maybe even as a leader, you start to attract high performers. Have you seen something that helps people to make that shift? Yeah. And it's interesting. And this goes back to the Steve Kerr example of identifying your values. So what are the values that you want to embed in the organization? And I'm not talking about copying and pasting some other high performing organization and and just pasting that into your own organization. That's never going to work. You, you want a culture within your organization. And that culture is success and excelling and trying new things and being innovative, right? Like all of Silicon Valley is, is doing that. They've created that. Well, how do you do that? And, and Steve Kerr, he told me that when he started coaching, 
he had to identify his values and and what what his values are. And he, you know, he, he rambled off quite an interesting list of what those values are. And then he needed to decide how is he going to actualize those values? Because if he can actualize those values, that would be the team culture. And that's exactly what he did. And Steve Kerr, he said that his values were joy, compassion, competition, and mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And at its core, it's about loving the game. And even for those top NBA players, it can be really hard to love the game if you had a bad game, if players booed you, if you were traded, if you're injured. But what is the way that you can still love the game? And you need to make those values come alive every single day because that that really becomes your, your culture. And, you know, Steve Kerr did it in his own way. He he was funny and he brought that that joyfulness into the gym. He would have music playing when they practice for part of it. When it's somebody's birthday, they'd make a, a video montage. They would find pictures from way back. That brings in that culture because you don't just have values. You don't just have a mission statement. It's how you enact those values and that mission statement every single day that becomes your culture. And it comes back to something you said earlier of you know our tendency a lot of times as leaders is to focus on the problem situations, the underperformers. Yes, yeah. obviously we do need to handle those. But what I really hear in that example and in the research is that the leaders who are leading high-performing teams are putting their time and effort and energy and proactiveness into really developing and supporting and mentoring the high performers. And I think, in fact, this goes back to some of Gallup's research over 20 years ago, that first break yep. all the rules, like the classic mistake a lot of us make as managers, especially early managers, is we spend all of our time with our poor performers. But yes. but but really, it's 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 if the sooner we can make that shift as a leader to be able to put our time, attention, and proactiveness to the high performers, that's really what the opportunity is. That's right. And imagine if some of those things that we did for the low performers, right? We're going to send you to courses and workshops to strengthen your skills. What if we did that with the high performers? And I said, Dave, what is a skill that you wish that you could learn? What is a gap that you think if you were able to learn this, it would take you to the next level? I'm going to send you to that. I'm giving you a professional development allowance. I'm going to send you to that. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that loyalty would be like? They're investing in me. They're sending me to learn things. I get to pick what some of those things are. That creates loyalty. That creates an incredible culture of high achievement. Now, high achievers, they learn something new. They want to implement it immediately. Immediately. They're not just going to sit with it and let it marinate in their brain. They're going to bring it back to your organization. And there goes that bar of excellence, which keeps getting raised. And it's such a different kind of thing in a maturity level that's, I think, different from an average or a poor performer of really wanting to make that shift to use something right away. And it, it goes back to one of the principles. You cite the work, by the way, of Malcolm Knowles, who is yes. widely regarded as one of the founding voices of adult learning principles. That's and right. by the way, adult is not necessarily age, right? It's maturity. Correct. <laughs> and high performers often fall in the category of being people who are generally pretty mature. 
And yeah. he had a bunch of assumptions that he developed to guide the understanding mm-hmm. of how adults learn and grow. And one of them you mentioned in the book is intrinsic motivation, That's which right. is focused on the person and their internal desire to learn. And yes. the key insight for me from his research is that intrinsic motivation is often a lot more powerful than the external things like promotions and diplomas and awards. That's right. What's the implication of that for people who do who do want to really lead the high performers and, and maybe want to go beyond just the traditional promotions, diplomas, titles, those kinds of things? Yeah. So all of the high achievers who I've interviewed, from the Nobel Prize winners to the astronauts and the, the Olympic champions, every single one was intrinsically motivated to pursue whatever it was that they were pursuing. It was never about the Nobel Prize. It was never about the gold medal. In fact, I always ask the Olympians, can you show me your medal? And it's funny because only two of them had it on display. I thought they'd have these big trophy rooms. No, they had it in a safe, in a box under the bed. One of them had it in a brown paper bag in his sock drawer, which I thought was... Fascinating, right? Was that Apollo Ono? Am I remembering? Yes, yes. It is a sock drawer. That's a great. (laughs) Yes, he had it in his sock drawer, and I thought, uh, you know, if I won an Olympic medal, I think I'd be wearing it to vacuum, right? (laughs) But it was never about the medal. They said that is a chapter in their lives. It's not the entire story, and as a result, there's always a higher aspiration of what it is that they want. So. They are intrinsically motivated to pursue something, but as they're pursuing something and as they're achieving something, they want to know that the organizations are recognizing their achievements. So they're not fueled by that award or the raise or the promotion, but that doesn't mean you can ignore it either. So if everybody who works on a project gets the same bonus, that's actually going to piss off the high achievers. Yeah. Because especially if they're doing the the bigger lift on the project, they do not want to be recognized in the same way. And they actually want bonus pays based on the value that you are bringing, based on the work that you have done. They do not want a one-size-fits-all model. Yeah, indeed. And one of the distinctions I hear as you say that is that the the kinds of things we traditionally think of as motivating factors, awards, promotions, uh, the typical kinds of recognition that happens in a lot of organizations. Not an Olympic medal? Not an (laughs) Olympic medal, right, exactly. But all of those are good things. Like, I don't think anyone's saying, like, don't do those things, right? right? But I think in a lot of organizations, those things are thought of as ending points. Yes, And what I'm hearing you say in the, in the research is that those are starting points. Yes, Correct. do those things, but that's don't stop there, especially for a high performer. Like, yes, by all means, do the things that are traditionally done, but make sure you go beyond that and look for the opportunities to engage intrinsically too. That's absolutely correct. And tapping into their intrinsic motivation will really get them to shine because that is what fuels them. This is what they would do for free if they could. Remember, they see this all as a puzzle, as a challenge. Their their failures are actually what fuels them. They're like, I haven't found the answer yet. They never question if they will overcome a challenge. They focus on how to overcome a challenge. So they will actually outwork everybody. But they want to know that 
as they outwork it because they want to, because they're so inspired by this, that as a leader, you will recognize that. Ruth, this is so much fun to think about how to do a better job at leading a high performer. There's a ton more in the book. And if you are in a situation as a leader where you are managing high performers, which I know many are, or even have several on your team, what a great entry point this would be to really understand and appreciate them. And you really go into a lot more depth in the book on kind of the four key factors of high performers. I would invite folks who find this of interest to really go and dive in. I think for more on your research, it'll be really, really useful for them. I want to ask you one more question before I let you go. Uh, one of the things I'm, I'm always so curious about is um, is what the experts are learning themselves and changing their minds <laughs> on. And you have been uh, at this work for a long time. You've written this book. You've done tons of research. You've, of course, worked with so many leaders. As you put together the book and kind of synthesized everything over the last couple of years, what's something that you've changed your mind on? You know, I, I tell people that I am patient zero. I needed to see if this worked. And if you read the introduction to the book, you'll actually, um, I really am, am quite transparent in how this whole thing evolved, where I was 43 when I started my doctorate and I did it while working full time and raising a family and having elder care for my parents and really being obsessed with success, with the idea of it, because I thought it was for other people. And as I kept learning about all of these things and making these connections of what these high achievers do, I have quickly realized that becoming a high achiever is a learned skill. So as I said at the beginning, you say leaders aren't born, they're made. Yeah. High achievers aren't born, they're made. And learning from all these extreme high achievers who I interviewed I reverse engineered the process and created the blueprint. And before I ever put pen to paper, I tried it on myself and I saw the results. I saw how it can improve your success. So I invite anybody who wants to improve their own success in any way that they define it to stop trying random things and really learn from these astronauts and Nobel Prize winners and Olympic champions because they all do the same four things. So why can't the rest of us? Ruth Gotian is the author of The Success Factor, Developing the Mindset and Skill Set for Peak Business Performance. Ruth, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so, so much. If this conversation was helpful, several related episodes I'd also point you to. One of them is episode number three, way back, uh, Six Ways Teaching Adults is Different Than Teaching Kids. Of course, teaching is an element of the responsibilities many leaders have on a daily basis to support the professional development of those around them, high performers or not. And in episode three, I walk through some of the key principles that's a little different working with adults than working with kids. Most of us have at least seen the models of education around uh, supporting kids. Of course, we all experience that in our primary, secondary, and even higher education. And yet we often haven't seen the perspective of what's a little different about teaching adults. Ruth talks about some of the research around this in her book. I did a deep dive on that in episode three, so that's a helpful complement to this conversation. Also recommended is episode 466, What High Performers Aren't Telling You. 
with my friend Scott Barlow. Scott is the founder and host of a podcast called Happen to Your Career and a firm by the same name. Him and his team work extensively with leaders who are in career transition to help them to really land their next opportunity, but more importantly, to do it with intention on what's going to be right for the next step in their career. And as you would imagine, he hears stories all day long from mostly high performers who come to him and his firm uh, talking about some of the struggles they're having inside their organization, uh, saying things to him that they're often not saying internally. And in episode 466, we pull back the curtain a bit, and Scott talks about what are some of the common things he is hearing from high performers that often they're not saying inside the organization and what you can do proactively to do better in leading those high performers. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 554, How to Multiply Your Impact with Liz Wiseman, is the most recent time she was on the show talking about her book, Impact Players. And we looked in that conversation through the lens of, as the employee, how can you do a better job at multiplying your impact? being that high performer. It's also a great framework for if you're supporting someone who's on that journey of uh, early on being a high performer, a high potential employee, it's a great framework for them. And of course, a wonderful complement to this conversation where we looked at it more from the leadership perspective, episode 554 for that. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. I'm inviting you to set up your free membership if you haven't before. It's going to give you access to a ton of benefits inside the free membership, including my weekly leadership guide, the entire library searchable by topic since 2011 when the show first started airing, and one of the other resources inside there is Dave's Library. That's right. So I have a link in there that says Dave's Library. When you set up your free membership, you can click on it inside of the portal there, and it'll take you to a page that has all kinds of topics by hashtag. I have been databasing for years all of the articles that I find in weekly guides, videos from other resources, other podcasts, things that I think would be really helpful to you in your ongoing leadership development, but also as credibility pieces for the work that you're doing inside your organization. Uh, I hope you're never spending time searching for the right article on a specific topic like I often did when I was managing a team uh, early in my career. It seemed like I could never find the right article at the right time to pass along to my team. I've already done most of that work for you. If you go inside of Dave's library there, you can search by topic for lots of different articles, things I've pulled from the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, Forbes, the New York Times over the years that I think will be helpful to you. Just one of the many benefits of free membership. Go over to coachingforleaders.com to get access to all of that. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Michael Shine to the show. He is going to be showing us how to attract attention in an effective and genuine way. Join me for that conversation with Michael and see you back next Monday.